Let us pray. Father, we ask that the words of that song would be true, that the world would know that we are Christians by our love for you, for one another, and for the entire world. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here this morning. Thanks to all of you who assisted with the food giveaway this weekend, whether that was on Thursday or Friday or Saturday. We had the privilege of serving 175 families yesterday here at the church. And so thank you and just continuing to reach out to our community in this way and look forward to what God's going to do in the days ahead. I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with scripture on them or your Bibles from under the pews and turn to St. John's Gospel, the 13th chapter. And also mark your thumb in Leviticus chapter 19. We'll be looking at both of these passages this morning. As I start today, um, I used a number of commentaries in preparing this sermon, but I especially want to give credit to F.F. Bruce and his commentary on John's Gospel that I leaned on heavily. And I think it's important to give credit where credit is due. I want to look at our gospel reading from John 13, especially focusing on verses 34 through 35 this morning. And as I've said, also looking at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 2, and then verses 9 through 19. And as we do this, what we will see is that the passage from St. John's gospel and our Old Testament reading from Leviticus chapter 19 are very closely related. And we'll see that the new commandment of John 13, 34 through 35 is in continuity with God's heart throughout the history of his commands to his people, both Old and New Testament. Now, the setting for our reading from John 13 this morning is the upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. As the reading points out, at this point, Judas has already departed. This is the night in which Jesus institutes the Holy Eucharist. This is the night in which he washes his disciples' feet, all part of what we commemorated just a few weeks ago on Monday, Thursday. And the term Monday actually comes from the Latin term for commandment, mandatum. So it's, we can think of Monday, Thursday as commandment or new commandment Thursday. That's really the idea that's conveyed there. Now we'll come back to this new commandment in a few moments, but before we do that, I think it's also important to understand that Jesus refers in the verses preceding verses 34 through 35 to his coming sufferings in the past tense. We shouldn't miss that point. He speaks of himself being glorified, past tense. And F.F. Bruce gives a wonderful explanation of the reason for this in his commentary where he writes, if Judas's mind had been made up, the Lord's mind has also been made up. He has accepted the suffering and death which lie ahead. Had he not accepted them, he might even at this late hour have taken evasive action. But he has accepted them, and therefore he can refer to the passion and the glory in the past tense. They are as good as accomplished. So this new commandment which Jesus gives to his disciples is grounded in the reality of his redemptive work, of his passion, his sacrificial death, his glorification being fully accomplished and finished. It is precisely because of what Jesus has accomplished that he can indeed give this new command, that his disciples can walk in and live out this commandment. 
So let's take a moment to look at the new commandment. Look at verse 34 of John 13 with me. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Specifically, what is new about this commandment is that they now have a concrete, tangible example in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God in human flesh. They have seen, they have heard, they have experienced in person the reality of Christ's love. You know, there's a big difference between reading about something or reading a manual on how to do something and actually doing it. I can go back to my construction days for an example. I'm, one of the things that comes to mind is learning how to, to solder or sweat copper pipe. Um, you can read all you want about that, but until you, one, have someone show you, and then that person stands beside you and allows you to do it for yourself, you'll never learn how to do that. Um, some of you that haven't done plumbing a whole lot, have you ever been frustrated with, with trying to solder a copper pipe on a plumbing project? I mean, I know of a few people have come close to losing their salvation, I think, over that. Uh, Eves understands if there's a little bit of water in the pipe or things aren't clean, but there, there is an art to it in terms of getting the pipe hot enough, but not too hot, um, how the solder flows. And that's one of those things you have to be shown, and then you have to do it with someone standing beside you for yourself. And you'll never learn it otherwise. Um, the same is true in Christian life. That's why it is so important to have people who are mature Christians walk beside less mature Christians or new believers, not only teaching them about the Christian life, but modeling it to them, and then doing Christian life together. The same is true with ministry. I think any of us who are, are priests can point back to specific individuals at different junctures in our life in preparation for ministry, and even in ministry, who have been mentors to us. They taught us, they instructed us, they walked beside us, and they said, now you do it with me here. That's the way we really learn how to do things. This is the way the disciples learned how to love. This is the way we learn how to love because we have seen and tasted of God's love in Christ Jesus and how Jesus has loved us. Now Jesus is about to leave them, but before he does on this night, he bequeaths them three spiritual treasures, if you will, that Bruce identifies. In John 13, he bequeaths them his love, and we'll focus on that primarily this morning. But also in John 14, he bequeaths them his peace. And in John 15, he bequeaths them his joy in this rather lengthy discourse and teaching in, in John's gospel. With regard to love, these disciples now have a new standard. The love which Jesus has lavished on them is now the love they are to have for one another. The love of God in Christ Jesus. And loving in this way is only possible through the power of the resurrected Jesus flowing in and through them. And this is very much in continuity with what we've talked about with regard to Christ's resurrection ever since Easter Day. The idea that certain things are only accomplished by the power of the resurrected Christ living and dwelling in us as God's people and flowing through us to touch others. We, like those disciples, can only live this love 
through the power of the resurrected Christ in us. What is new in this commandment is the reality of a new community through living faith in Christ based on Christ's finished work. Leon Morris captures it well when he says this in his commentary. There is a new relationship within that community. It was new because the love of Christ's friends for Christ's sake was a new thing in the world. Jesus himself has set the example. He calls on them now to follow in his steps. The new motivation, the new motive is to love our neighbor because Christ has loved us. I think that raises a question as we move through this text. How are we doing with that? How am I? How are you doing with that? How are we doing that with, with that with each other in this church? You know, sometimes it's not an easy thing. Do you ever have a brother or sister in Christ frustrate you or aggravate you or tick you off? My hand's up first. It's not always easy, is it? And yet God calls us to this. And he promises us that through Christ we can live in this way. We think it's not easy to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. What about the broader community? What about people in the world who, who may even see us as believers, as enemies? This was a distinguishing mark of the early church, and it should also be for us. The early church follower Tertullian, writing in the second century, reports that the pagans of his day said this about Christians. See how they love one another. See how ready they are to die. For one another. It's not easy. It's impossible in the flesh. It's not easy for us. And it was not easy for the early Christians either. Think of the composition of the early church. People from a whole spectrum of social groups. I mean, first of all, Jews, Gentiles, and Samaritans together. I mean, you talk about oil and water only in Christ, in one body, worshiping one God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But beyond that, rich, poor, slave, free, every range of social status and political party, now all brought together and made one in Christ. So often our differences as Christians are on things which are far from essentials. And hear me, there are bedrock essentials which we must agree on. Essentials that put us, in a sense, inside or outside the camp of what it means to be a true Christian. But as Bishop John talked about in the Sunday Squad when he was here back in November, there are lots of things that we disagree on where there's room for disagreement. And we struggle, and we all, I think, or many of us, or most of us struggle with this at least. We want everybody to think exactly the way we do about everything. Anybody else identify with that? We do. And so, as the example Bishop John gave, you know, Scripture doesn't specifically address United States federal tax policy. And you may have different perspectives, even within this room, on that. And we need to understand that we won't see eye to eye on some of those things together. 
I love the saying that I, I know goes back at least to the holiness churches in the Wesleyan holiness movement in the late 19th and early 20th century. But I believe it goes back beyond that. But there's a saying some of you may have heard, which I think is, rings true for us today. Unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, love in all things or charity in all things. A new commandment, unique because of the living example of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection, his finished work. But we also see that this is a new commandment that is old. Turning to Leviticus 19. The essence of Jesus' command to love was not new. It was something to which God had called his people since the earliest days of them being set apart for his purposes. St. John alludes to this in 1 John chapter 2. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you find from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This requirement of love is found throughout the Old Testament. And this, as I've mentioned so often, is contra what some people say about the Old Testament and this dichotomy they try to draw where somehow the God of the Old Testament is painted as a God of judgment and wrath and the God of the New Testament is painted as a God of grace and love. That is absolutely false. God in his eternal character is unchanging. He is the same. This is especially evident in today's Old Testament reading from Leviticus chapter 19. And just like the new commandment of John chapter 13, these commandments to God's people also flow from the heart and the character of God. Leviticus 19 verses 1 through 2 affirms this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. The context for all of this is being holy as God is holy. And being holy as God is holy requires walking in God's love. The idea here in the Old Testament of God being holy was something unique in the ancient Near East. All of the false pagan gods and things that people attributed to them had nothing to do with moral character and uprightness. Holiness in pagan religions was really just about being set apart for worship. So for instance, in Canaanite religion, you had what were known as holy women, which were temple prostitutes that engaged in all kinds of vile practices with, with men as a part of worship of their gods. But in the ancient Near East, the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was set apart as holy in a distinct and unique way from any other God because he was also good and upright and righteous in all that he did and does. The commands of Leviticus encompass love, concern, and just treatment of both those within the community, within the community of God's covenant people, and also outside of that covenant community, outside of the community of faith. But it all grows and springs forth from the heart and the character of God. 
a key point of Jesus' new commandment, which clearly flows from that which is ancient, is kind of this, I'm paraphrasing. If you can't love each other within the community of faith, if you can't love your brothers and sisters in the covenant community, how in the world will you ever begin to love those outside of God's covenant people? Every command God gives in this passage from Leviticus 19 ends with these words. I am the Lord. And note, if you look at the English, your Bible, Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that indicates that this is not what was used here in the original language, was not the Hebrew word for Lord, but the personal covenant name of God, what we would know as Yahweh. The name of God that was only to Israel in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And, and for Jews at that time, that name was never pronounced. So the word for Lord was substituted. As a matter of fact, the Masoretes who um, developed Hebrew, let me back up, Hebrew originally didn't have any vowels. And the Masoretes were Hebrew scholars between the 6th and 10th century AD who developed a vowel pointing system for the Hebrew language. And they realized that ancient Hebrew was dying out. And that if they didn't develop a vowel pointing system before too long, nobody would know how to pronounce the words. So they developed, if you've ever seen Hebrew, all these little dots and dashes under the letters, those are the vowel pointings. I see Sheila shaking her head, yes. Um, but the one word they never developed any vowel pointings for was the personal name of God because no Jew was to ever pronounce that name aloud. And yet God says here, I am the Lord. I am the personal covenant keeping God and keeping my commandments, fidelity to God, loving obedience grows out of this covenant relationship. It grows out of a living relationship and intimate fellowship with God. Let's be clear and let's not fool ourselves. The moral and ethical commands of God in the old covenant are not somehow or in any way negated under the new covenant. They're not. Yes, certain ceremonial laws and things that were fulfilled in Christ. Yes, those are negated or they're not really negated. They're completed or fulfilled in Christ. But the moral law, it applies to us. The principles still apply. And the reality is we are called now to a higher standard because Christ's redemptive work is finished, it's complete, and we have the record of the living example of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh himself. And these moral laws, these moral commands flow from God's heart, from his character, which is the very character from which, to which we are now called to be conformed through Jesus Christ, the character of the one true eternal and living God. Remember what the prophet Ezekiel foretold and St. Paul deals with extensively in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that these commands reflecting God's heart and character are no longer written on tablets of stone, but now they are written in the very heart of believers. And God's word here gives you and me very clear and specific examples that very much connect with John chapter 13 
of not only how we are called to love and demonstrate that love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but Leviticus goes on to command how we are to love those around us as well, those who may or may not be of God's household. And I want to summarize just a couple of the points from Leviticus 19 here. Care for the sojourner and the alien. For those who are from a foreign land, who, who may be new in a country, who may be passing through, who may be travelers, who may be here as refugees. God gives very clear commands to his Old Testament people about how they are to be treated and how they are to be cared for. And those principles still apply for us today. And God reminds Old Testament Israel that they are rooted, this command is rooted in his love for his people, reminding them that they had too been poor and aliens in Egypt. The command that we are not to make life more for others more difficult, either directly or indirectly. And the idea is doing things for gain or profit that make life harder for others. Not profiting from another person's loss. All kinds of ways that this applies to us. I mean, I'm just going to mention a couple for food for thought. I mean, I think this along with a whole bunch of other reasons is a good example scripturally of why a Christian should never gamble. Gambling always involves profiting from someone else's loss. But how about things like my retirement funds and what I invest in or what you invest in? I know I'm, I'm poking the hornet's nest. But we need to be careful, brothers and sisters, that how we utilize and invest and how we profit, nothing wrong with investments, please hear me, but how we profit and even business practices that we engage in don't gain or don't result in gain by making life harder for other people or on another person's loss, including people outside of this country who may be working for basically slave wages so that we are companies that we're invested in can profit. We need to think about these kinds of things. Fair treatment of laborers and employees and paying people both in terms of employees but those who do work for us, paying them sufficiently, paying them well. And on time, these principles still apply. My grandfather used to tell the story when he was a teenager. Um, I should back up. Ironically, the man I'm going to tell the story about became, ended up being the father of his brother-in-law later on. Now, my great uncle was nothing like his father. His father, I knew him when I was a young boy as an old man. He was a crook. But in everything he did, I mean, he, I could tell you dozens of stories that the family shared, but this is when my grandfather was a young man and, um, my grandfather was born 1910. So this is a long time ago. And this man said to him, I won't use his name because we're being recorded, um, said, you boys want to make some money today? And so they helped pick potatoes in a field, went behind a potato picker as the potatoes were plowed up and bagged. 100-pound burlap bags of potatoes and loaded them on the truck all day. And at the end of the day, the man gave him a 100-pound bag of potatoes and said, gee, boys, thanks so much for your help. I'll see you later. And I can tell you a lot of stories about that man that are very similar. Um, but, but that's ungodly. We need to treat those who work for us or who do work for us well. We need to pay them fairly. We need to pay them on time. Leviticus talks about not taking advantage of those with disabilities. 
in so many ways. And the, one of the examples here in Leviticus is not cursing someone who is deaf. And the idea is they don't have an opportunity to speak for themselves because they can't hear what you're saying. But integrity in our interactions with people. Integrity that recognizes their state in life and our state in life. And not being angry. Leaving vengeance to God. Anyone ever struggle with that one? Leaving vengeance to God. Even when we're wronged. Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bury grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All of this was incredibly radical in the Old Testament world. It was incredibly radical for the disciples in Jesus' day. So this was completely contrary to the notions attributed in those cultures to false pagan gods who were warlike and wrathful. Fact is, this is still really radical stuff. It's still really radical to love our enemies, to love those who wound and hurt us. to be upright and just in all of our business dealings, to treat people fairly, to not hold grudges, but leave vengeance to the Lord. And yet God calls us to this. And God says and promises us that it is indeed possible through Christ and his resurrection power. As we reflect God who is unique and holy in every sense. God who is altogether good and upright and lovely. And he calls us, even as it says in Leviticus 19 to be ye holy as I am holy. Be set apart. Be like me. Reflect my character as I am. If we think that doesn't apply, here are these words of 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God calls us in every sense to be set apart, to reflect his character, to reflect his moral uprightness, to reflect his holiness and to reflect his love that has been shed abroad in our hearts through Jesus Christ, God, the son incarnate who promises us that through his finished work and through his glorification, this indeed is possible for us as God's people. And as we do that, we will shine as bright lights, unique and set apart from the whole world around us. And may he give us grace to do that in ever greater measure. Let us pray. Father, you are the Lord and holy is your name. We hear that read so often and yet, Lord, we, we don't always fathom the magnitude 
and the profundity of that statement. And even beyond that, you call us and you equip and empower us to be holy even as you are holy. And in that holiness, to love as you have loved us. To love even as Jesus, the eternal Son of God, modeled and demonstrated for us. So, Lord, would you make that real for us today? Through the power of the resurrected Jesus, whose life is in us and flows out from us. Lord, make us that light, that living, loving life to those around us, to love our brothers and sisters. Lord, grow us and strengthen us in that. May we extend forgiveness where it needs to be extended, even as we desire to receive it. And Lord, give us your grace and power to love even those who from the world's standards seem unlovable because they are truly loved by you. And you call us to love them even as you do. So Lord, we ask that you would mold us and shape us and continue doing your good work in us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.